Greetings to all those of you who are gathered with us this morning to worship our great God. I invite you to turn in his holy word to the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verses 1 through 18. Turn in scripture to the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verses 1 through 18. And again, welcome to all those of you who are gathered with us. Let's hear God's word together. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been, that he had, Already had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he, answered, um, but he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, our hearts hunger and thirst for you. And we pray that you would mediate your life-giving presence to us today through your word and spirit. Father, we ask that through your word you would expose those areas of our hearts where we are guilty of unbelief, disbelief in your word, and bring us to a place of faith. Uh, Show us those pockets of resistance in our lives where we need to repent and help us through your word to repent. And you you know, O Lord, the heartaches and burdens that every single person has brought with them into church today, into our assembly today. And we pray that through your word you would bring abundant consolation to every heavy heart. Do this, O God, yes, for our good, but supremely for your glory and honor and that of your son Jesus. Work in our midst now, we ask. Amen. Uh, many years ago, I picked up an audiobook from the library, which I thought was on uh, Stoicism, this ancient philosophical movement. I think it was Stoicism. But it turned out to be just like a set of techniques, uh, presumably advanced by the Stoics, for de- developing a kind of emotional detachment from the traumas of life. So, for example, like one recommendation was you take something small that you own, like a cup, and you break it. And you say, it doesn't matter. 
And then you, you keep doing it with more expensive things and more significant things. So you can reach a place of emotional detachment. The idea is that you can change yourself fundamentally through technique. And that assumption continues to be shared by an assortment of modern self-help books. If you go to the library, you've got all these books that uh, want to teach you how to be your best self. And it's often through techniques, through tweaking your life this way or that, or life hacks, that you can become the person you want to be. Well, uh, Scripture teaches us that if we are going to experience a radical renewal of our lives, it is not through technique, it's through a person. It's through a personal relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ. He alone can make us what God intends for us to be. This morning we'll note three things. First, Jesus restores life through his powerful word. Second, Jesus calls us to turn from sin. And third, Jesus has authority to do what God does. So we find Jesus in this passage in the city of Jerusalem. There's some unspecified feast. And in Jerusalem, there are these roofed places near a pool called Bethesda, where people who are physically damaged and handicapped uh, would gather together. These are the blind, the, the paralyzed, the, the crippled. Uh, and they were presumably here because it may have been thought, as the man who was healed thought, that if you could just get in these waters, in this pool, when the waters are stirred, uh, you might, in fact, experience healing. Now, you will notice that in many modern uh, translations of the Bible, there is no verse 4. ESV, for instance, there's no verse 4. What you do get is a footnote, the bottom of the page, that, uh, identifying verse 4. And the reason for that is many, uh, indeed most, evangelical, Bible-believing New Testament scholars believe that verse 4 is a later scribal addition. Uh, to explain why they thought that the stirred up waters would bring healing. An angel of the Lord came down, uh, and it's assumed that a scribe added that later, but wasn't part of the original uh, text of John's gospel. But in any case, whether we omit it or not, there, it doesn't make a huge difference to our interpretation of this passage, but you should understand why the ESV jumps from verse 3 to verse 5. Now, there is an individual... Uh, among you know, this human wreckage, among the paralyzed and the blind, there's a, there's a man who apparently has been paralyzed for 38 years. He's apparently paralyzed because he can't get himself to the pool when the water is stirred. That's a long time. It's said that on average, a man in the ancient world lived about 42 years. He lived to be about 42 years of age, and this man had experienced paralysis for 38 years. You can imagine the hopelessness the pain, the sorrow that this man experienced. And one day, the Son of God shows up and asks him if he would like his troubles to go away. So literally what happens, right? Jesus comes from nowhere, unlooked for, unasked for. This is, this is how God's grace works, by the way. It just shows up, unlooked for and unasked for. And we're told that Jesus knew that he had been there a long time, and that knowledge is probably that same kind of supernatural knowledge that Jesus exhibits with the woman at the well. He's aware of her morally complicated past uh, supernaturally, and in the same way, he's, because he is the Son of God, he knows what this man has endured. That means, and what we are consistently shown in the Gospel of John, is that Jesus knows all of our stories. 
He is intimately acquainted with all of our heartaches and joys. Knows every single laughter and every single tear. And he comes to this man and he says to him, do you want to be healed? Now, the man doesn't respond directly, verse 7. The man has no category for healing apart from this water that would be stirred up, perhaps by some underground well. Um, And so he says to Jesus, well, I have nobody to take me to the water. He assumes the only way for me to get well is the water. I can't get there. Perhaps he's implicitly requesting that Jesus would take him. But in any case, that is the one way that he can see he'll get better, and it's not possible for him to get there. Well, Jesus doesn't delay any longer, doesn't ask him any more questions. With his powerful word, he says simply, verse 8, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And the man is healed instantly. He gets up because Jesus commanded him to. With a word, Jesus banishes illness and paralysis and restores this man's health. It's that same powerful word that John describes in uh, chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming... When all who are in the tombs will hear his voice, the voice of the Son, and come out. And those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. A day is coming when the Son of God will speak, and the dead will hear and rise. And we are in this healing, given a glimpse of that powerful word. When Jesus says, be healed, the man is healed. With a word, he reverses 38 years of hopelessness, misery, and despair and gives the man fresh hope and joy. That's what Jesus does. He restores life. That man in front of him with that broken body was a testament to the fact that we live in a fallen world scarred by the consequences of sin. The world as it is is not as it should be. God made the world good, but we see it in all of its brokenness and fallenness. And what we're being shown about Jesus is that with one word... He can reverse the curse of sin and bring restoration and renewal to our lives. Jesus can do that, and he can do that physically as well as spiritually. In him, we have the resources to be radically renewed. You want to be transformed? Go to Jesus. He's the one who can take the broken pieces of your life, and he can put them back together. That's where you're going to find the transformation that you seek. One implication of this is that we should ask Jesus right now for physical healing. Jesus continues to supernaturally heal people. Uh, He continues as Lord over all to give good gifts to his children who ask. And so when we are sick or those around us are sick, we should ask him for healing. And he answers that request in prayer according to his goodwill and pleasure. Now we should know and be very clear about the fact that there is no absolute guarantee in Scripture that if you ask for healing, it'll come. Sometimes we're told by uh, people that if we have enough faith, we'll be healed. And if we're not healed, it's our lack of faith. Not necessarily. Jesus may have good reasons that only he knows for withholding healing. Uh, He is wise and he is good. And if he withholds healing, it's because he knows best and we need to trust him. Nevertheless, when his children ask, when his people ask, he is often pleased to grant supernatural healing. And so we should approach him with a sense of expectation. Jesus is powerful and he's good and he's for you. So draw near with expectation. It's a bit like uh, if you're a child and you want a toy, uh, you can go to your dad and, uh, and you can ask. 
Now, there's no guarantee that your dad will give you the toy. He might have good reasons for withholding the toy. But you know your dad. Hopefully he's good and generous, and he delights to bring happiness to you. And so you don't approach him with absolute certainty, because you don't know what he's going to say. The ways of dad are inscrutable. Uh, but you, you approach dad with an, a sense of expectation. My dad is good. He gives good gifts. You don't approach him with, uh, it's probably pointless because my dad never gives me good gifts, but whatever. Go through the motions because that's what I'm supposed to do. Right? You don't approach that way. Right? That would be unbelief. Uh, you don't approach with absolute certainty either because you might say no, but you approach with a sense of, I believe in his goodness and his faithfulness, and so I approach with a sense of expectation. John Bloom, in his article, We Should Pray for Healing, challenges us in this way. Do we believe God loves to give good gifts, including healing to his children? Do we have the boldness to ask him in faith? Do we avoid seeking this gift because we don't believe God will answer and we don't want to look powerless, be disappointed, or make God look bad? If we find our faith is small, the best thing to do is begin to ask. We can ask for more faith and begin to pray for healings. Bloom challenges us to, to come before God with great petitions and expectations. In this connection, I should note that our practice in accordance with James chapter 5 at CBC, our practice as elders is to pray for those who are sick. Uh, and so if there's an illness or a sickness that comes and you would like prayer from the elders, please reach out and we would be happy to uh, pray for God's healing over you. That's something we do uh, with some frequency and all of you are welcome to ask for that kind of prayer should you be sick. But a second thing to note about this passage, apart from physical healing, Jesus is interested in our spiritual renewal. Jesus has the power in himself to morally renew even the most morally deformed lives. Do you believe that? That regardless of how far down you have fallen, regardless of what you've done, Jesus can change you and make you pure and holy like he is. This, this should be a tremendous encouragement to those who maybe have struggled with a particular sin for a long time a habitual sin, a long-standing sin. And you look at it and you say, Lord, it feels hopeless. Perhaps like that man who for 38 years felt like uh, health was hopeless. I've prayed fervently, Lord, that you take away this pride, this contempt for others, this insecurity and the fear of man, this anger problem, this irritability, this lust, uh, this laziness, this lack of self-control. Lord, I've prayed and I don't see any progress. We're tempted to lose heart. But what this text is saying is that Jesus can and will change you. His power to transform you is far greater than the darkness in your life. So don't lose heart. Keep trusting in him. Keep fighting against sin. Keep praying for grace. Keep striving for holiness. And in due course, the fruit of obedience and righteousness will ripen. Trust him. Go to, him and say, go to Jesus and say, Lord, I, I don't like the way I've lived, and I want to be done with this sin. I want to be free from it, but I'm not going to lose heart because I believe you're bigger than my sin. So strengthen me to keep fighting. Don't lose heart this morning because Jesus has the power to renew not just our bodies, but also our souls. So the man listens to Jesus. He picks up his mat, and he goes on his way. Crucially, he does this on the Sabbath. Uh, as you know, many of you know, the Sabbath was a day of rest. You weren't supposed to engage in your normal employment. 
certain, almost certainly what the Old Testament command means. Just don't do what you normally do throughout the week. Take a time to worship and rest and be refreshed. But we need to recognize that in the first century, uh, Jews in Jesus' day had multiplied all sorts of rules and regulations about what constitutes work and what isn't work. There are like 39 different categories for assessing is this work or not work. Picking up a bed and moving it from one domain to another was viewed as work. It was viewed as a violation of the Sabbath. So these Jewish leaders come to the man and they point out that he's violating the law. It is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. You're doing something wrong. Now, it's not quite clear how we should take the man's response. It almost seems, and the wording seems to imply, that he's blaming Jesus. Verse 11, he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. It's not my fault. The man who healed me, he told me to do this. And that reading is probably reinforced by another detail that we'll get to later uh, when we look at this man. He says, it's not me. The guy who healed me told me to. Now, if someone just said to you, the man who healed me told me to, what would your next question be? What? Healed you? What was wrong with you? Who healed you? Is that their question? They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Like of all the things to ask in response, that's like the last thing. They're still preoccupied with this violation of man-made regulations. And in their preoccupation with man-made regulations, they are missing the work that God is doing in their midst. They are blind to the glory of God because they're hung up on their scruples and their rules and regulations. They don't see this thing that's unfolding in front of them. What that shows us is we need to be very careful about being more strict than God. Uh, We can certainly be broader than God, which is not good, ignore the commands that he's given us in Scripture. Uh, But we can also require things of ourselves and others that God doesn't. And that's not a sign of spiritual maturity in the New Testament, by the way. It's It's a sign of a spiritual weakness. We need to be careful in encouraging others to do things that God doesn't require them to do. Like, we might be predisposed because of our background and upbringing and education, Uh, to have certain biases for certain things, but we shouldn't take our prejudices and absolutize them and make them uh, equivalent to God's law and require other people to follow man-made regulations. And equally, we should resist those who attempt to foist on us rules and laws and commandments that God doesn't require. We shouldn't submit to their unbiblical rules and regulations. When someone says, it's not lawful for you to, to do that, you should ask, where is that in Scripture? Where is that taught in God's word that I shouldn't do that or I should do that? Test everything by God's word and don't be misled by religious zeal. Which is very easy to do. Man, this person's zealous, so they must be right. Not necessarily. A person can be very zealous and absolutely wrong. Zeal, uh, zeal rather, is not identical to spiritual maturity. So they miss it. Who told you to break the law? Now, the man can't identify Jesus because he, lo- he got lost in the crowds after healing the man. So he's not yet able to, to identify Jesus to these Jewish leaders. Later, Jesus finds the man who, whom he has healed in the temple precincts, perhaps later that day, and he says something enigmatic. Like, just when you feel like, okay, I understand Jesus. He says something like this. 
found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. What? What, what is he saying? Uh, first thing to notice is that Jesus is not interested in simply dealing with our physical problems. He's interested in dealing with the root spiritual problems. He's interested in dealing with the sickness under the sickness. For Jesus merely to have healed the man's body, but not talk to him about his soul and his need for forgiveness and grace, uh, would have been less than loving, would have less than, uh, fallen short of the man's true need. So Jesus says, sin no more, uh, that's, so that nothing worse will happen to you. And in this context, I think the worst thing that Jesus is describing is not some worse illness, but last day judgment. You see, for example, in verse 29 where Jesus uh, speaks of those who have done good, they, they partake in the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil or those who have sinned will partake of the resurrection of judgment. So the worst fate that Jesus is describing is not like a worse illness. He's talking about the judgment of God. Uh, he's saying that if you continue down this path of rebellion against the Creator, the outcome of that persistent sin will be that the judgment of God falls on you. Jesus is not saying you have to be absolutely perfect. It's not the point. He's saying you, what you need to do is you need to repent. You need to turn from your sinful, rebellious ways and submit to God. And if you do not, there is a worse outcome waiting for you. Jesus is attempting to get this man to see what his real need is. And his real need is not physical healing. It's reconciliation to God. And we need to understand that that is the path that we are on apart from Jesus. Apart from faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, we are also headed towards eternal ruin and judgment. Regardless of how good we might think we are, our natural condition is to rebel against the Creator, doing what we want to do rather than what He wants us to do. And the warning that Jesus gives this man is the warning that we should also take to heart that if we don't turn from a life of rebellion against the Creator and submit to Jesus, we will also experience the judgment of God on the last day. Now, let's be clear about what Jesus isn't saying. Jesus is not saying, stop sinning, seek to obey God, and then God will accept you. That's moralism, it's legalism, it's anti-gospel. In verse 24, chapter 5, 24, Jesus says very clearly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. How do you get eternal life? By simple faith in Jesus. By simply relying on the work that he has done. It's not our abstaining from sin and doing good that saves us. It is simple trust in Jesus. He's done everything that we need to be reconciled to God. And God calls us to simply rest in that. But note, if we are really resting in Jesus as our Savior we will also turn from a life of rebellion to a life of increasing submission to Jesus. Faith and repentance in the New Testament are opposite sides of the same coin. They always go together. There's no such thing as believing in Jesus and not turning from a life of sin and rebellion. The sign that you really trust in Jesus is that in your heart you increasingly love the commands of God. 
You find them beautiful. You delight in his will. And you increasingly hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's impossible to believe in Jesus and not experience moral renewal. Increasing righteousness. That righteousness doesn't save you. But it's a necessary fruit of your being saved. J.C. Ryle in his Anglican bishop lived in the 19th century. Uh, he made this observation in his famous book on holiness. He says, Boast not of Christ's work for you unless you can show us the Spirit's work in you. you know, don't talk to me about having received grace if the Spirit isn't changing your life. This is a corrective to a lot of distorted understandings of the gospel. Oh, Jesus saves me. Uh, I'm reconciled to God, therefore I can live however I want. No. No, it's true, Jesus saves you, and it's not your works that saves you. The sign that you're really resting in him is that you are increasingly submitting yourself to God and desire to do his will. Which confronts us with a question. Do you hunger and thirst for holiness, for submission to God's will? Do you delight in his will? Or are you morally complacent? Ah. God forgives, that's his job, I can do whatever I want. That's why Jesus came into the world to forgive sinners. If that's your view, that might not be what you say, but if in practice that's the way you live, that's actually a distortion of the gospel, and you might be self-deceived about your spiritual condition. Faith in Jesus brings renewal of life. J.C. Ryle, in his book on holiness, also goes on to point out that we often substitute feeling bad for actually changing our lives. It's easier to feel bad about your sin and go, woe is me, Lord, than to actually do something about it. Like, God doesn't mainly want you to feel bad about your sin. It's part of it. He mainly wants you to stop rebelling, and he wants you to submit to him. Here's how Ryle puts it. There are people whose religion seem to consist in going about complaining of their own corruptions and telling everyone that they could do nothing of themselves. I know there are texts in Scripture which warrant such complaints. I do not object to them when they come from men who walk in the steps of the Apostle Paul and fight the good fight as he did against sin and the devil and the world. But I never like such complaints when I see ground for suspecting that they are only a cloak to cover spiritual laziness and an excuse for spiritual sloth. He's talking about the kind of person who's going, oh, I'm just so broken, I need grace. You know, I'm just, there's so much to grieve over. Well, yeah, but are you seeking power through the Holy Spirit to kill sin and grow in holiness? Or are you just feeling bad because it's easier than actual moral striving? God calls you, Hebrews 12, 14, to strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Are you striving for holiness? So this is what Jesus is getting at. He's calling the man to repent and come to God and turn from his wickedness. Now, again, the man's response here is enigmatic. What does he do? He goes to the Jews and he identifies Jesus. Because they previously didn't know his identity. Who's telling you to break the law? We, I don't know. But now he goes and tells them. What do we make of that? He must have known at some level that these Jewish leaders were opposed to Jesus. Because they were insistent that you better tell us who told you to break the law. And the result of his going to them is that they start to persecute and oppose Jesus. Note the contrast between this man and another character in John chapter 9. 
man who was born blind. Jesus heals that man, and the result is that that man gets in trouble for Jesus. This man gets Jesus in trouble. Again, the parallels suggest that at worst, this man is actually, having been confronted with his sin, the man wants nothing to do with it. And he's saying, that's the guy. That's the guy who's violating the law or advocating violation of the law. Um, at best, he's naive. Either way, what seems, he, the man's response seems to fall well short of faith in Jesus. And what that indicates is that, I mean, this guy has experienced this massive miracle. 38 years, in a sense, wiped away, right? healed, restored. And yet he still doesn't believe in Jesus as his Lord, as the Son of God. Uh, you can experience the miraculous, the spectacular. God can do even this, a miracle of this magnitude in your life. And by itself, it doesn't necessarily produce faith. What we see often in John's gospel is that the performance of miracles engenders a hankering for more miracles and not necessarily for more Jesus. We sometimes say, if I, get, oh, if I just had a miracle, then that would solidify my faith in God. It's often not the case. What miracles often do is create a desire for more miracles. So he's gone to these Jewish leaders, and now they're challenging Jesus. What are you doing? Now, Jesus could have responded by saying, hey, your interpretation of the Old Testament is wrong. Let me show you why your man-made laws aren't what Moses meant by the Sabbath observance. He doesn't do that. Look at verse 17. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. There was a view in first century Judaism that said God's creative activity stopped on the seventh day. So God stopped creating, Genesis, right, Genesis 2. He stopped creating on the seventh day, so in that sense he rested. But he continued to work in the sense that he continued to uphold the universe and rule over it, rule over human history. And here's what Jesus is saying. My father's working on the Sabbath, and whatever allows him to do that allows me to work on the Sabbath. The same authority that allows God to break, if you will, the Sabbath, allows me to break it. Implicitly, implicitly Jesus is saying, I have the same authority as God. What the Father does, the Son does. I can do this because I am God and I possess the authority of God. The Jews knew what he meant. At this point, they no longer seek to just oppose him because he was breaking the Sabbath by healing and teaching others to pick up their bed. They were also opposing him and seeking even to kill him because he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This is a pretty blunt statement. I do what the Father does, and I have the same prerogatives, rights, and authority as God the Father. This text challenges us to consider how do you view Jesus? The common view of Jesus is that he was a wise teacher. But what Jesus says here simply won't allow you uh, to have that interpretation of his life and ministry. He's saying he is God. Do you accept it or not? C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, says, okay, given Jesus' claim to be God, there are only three possible interpretations of his claim. The first possibility is he's a liar, that he's saying what he knows to be false. 
But as we read the gospel accounts and we see Jesus' commitment to truth, his commitment to truth is the, one of the things that causes him to be crucified. The last thing we would ever say of Jesus is that he's a liar. Is he a lunatic? That's the other possibility. There were delusions of grandeur. He was deeply disturbed and he thought he was something he wasn't. But again, when we read the gospel accounts of Jesus, there's no one more sane than uh, the Christ that we encounter on the pages of Scripture. Which, says Lewis, leaves us with the last possibility. And that is, Jesus actually was who he claimed he was. He really was God in the flesh, come into the world to save sinners. And therefore, there is only one appropriate response, to bow down and worship him and give to the Son the same honor that we give to the Father. How do you view Jesus this morning? Do you accept Jesus' testimony about himself? If you do, your response will be twofold. One, you will trust in him as your Savior. He came into the world to reveal God and also to take upon himself the judgment that you and I deserve. At the cross, he bore the judgment of God and rose triumphantly from the grave that we might have eternal life in him. First response will be to trust in him. And secondly, we will offer our lives unconditionally to him as our Lord and King. Are you honoring Jesus' self-testimony that he is indeed the Son of God by trusting him and living in obedience to his will for his glory and your good? May God help us all to honor our Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we confess to you that you are worthy of the same worship and honor that the Father is. And we give thanks today that you have come down from glory, come down from a great height into this dark and sinful world to rescue us from our sins and bring us life with God. We praise you, and our deep desire is to draw ever closer to you. Amen.